through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI Radio listener. Joey Watson here. Good to be with you one last time for this year and, yes, the decade. If you haven't come with us before, this show is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and roll through the records from their life. We tell some stories too. Today, Osman Faruqi. Oz is a journalist and commentator, and in that pursuit, he's been exposed to some of the most vitriolic tactical abuse that Australia's far right are capable of producing. He's also had a stint as an engineer in training, been a political operator, and of course has spent some time on the airwaves at FBI Radio, who hasn't in the Australian media scene. Uh, We've caught him in uh, transition. He's preparing to move to Melbourne next year, where he'll be working on Schwartz Media's 15-minute morning news podcast, 7am. Oz, welcome back to FBI Radio. Welcome to Out of the Box. Joey, thank you so much for having me. I've been a big fan of Out of the Box for many years. It's genuinely an honour to be on this show. Oh, that's such a nice thing to start with. And and in on the last episode of the decade as well. It's very exciting. Glad I This is legacy in. stuff, Oz. Yeah. Legacy stuff here. <laughs> no, I'm a big fan. Um, let's start in Port Macquarie, where you grew up. Hmm. How how did your family end up on the mid north coast of New South Wales, firstly? It's a very, very, very good question. And I'm not totally sure of the answer even now. <laughs> um, you know, a decade after I moved away. Um, So my family moved from Pakistan when I was about one and a half and they moved to Sydney originally. They didn't um, settle too far from the airport that they landed at, classic migrant story. Back then, the inner city suburb of Alexandria in Sydney wasn't the hipster paradise it is now. It was very working class. Um, Sydney Park was then still a toxic garbage tip. Um, It had not been gentrified into the wonderful playground it is and um, rent was cheap for a young migrant couple there. Um, Dad had many degrees in engineering, but spent a lot of the first few years of his life in Australia driving taxis. Uh, Mum was studying at UNSW and they kind of struggled to get jobs in their field as engineers. And eventually when they did, they found the Sydney kind of rat race a bit too relentless. It wasn't what they wanted when they'd moved to Australia. So they started looking further afield outside of the city, which is pretty unusual because most migrants tend to not do that in Australia. They come to the city where they're around community, family, friends and stay there. But my folks uh, got jobs working for the local council at the same time um, and thought, this is a cool opportunity. Let's take our family. Let's get out of Sydney and let's live in Port Macquarie, which I'd never heard of um, before we moved there. Um, I, my mom, I think, was even confused at one point and thought maybe we were moving to Lake Macquarie um, uh, in the Hunter Valley. Uh, but it wasn't, no. Port Macquarie, a couple of hours further north. You're going coastal. We went coastal, uh, What yeah. sort of town is Port Macquarie, especially for a, for a young mi- migrant family? Yeah, it's uh, Port Macquarie is a naturally very beautiful town. It's got amazing surf. It's got tropical rainforest and... Growing up there as a kid, there were a lot of positives and the fact we lived opposite the beach was great. It was super accessible. It was friendly in the way that kind of regional Australia is to sort of everyone, but it was a weird place to grow up as a Muslim kid with a name like Osman Faruqi uh, in the, you know early 2000s to late 2000s. I'm assuming the Muslim community up there wasn't enormous at the it time. Was, it was non-existent. Um, you know, I think there was the a couple of Turkish guys who ran the kebab shop, you know, who were nominally Muslim. There was It's one of the whitest towns in Australia. It's one of the oldest towns in Australia. It has historically had one of the highest votes for 
the One Nation Party in Australia as well. Um, it was the seat that Mark Vale, the former Deputy Prime Minister, held for a very long time. It's it's pretty much like conservative heartland. But weirdly, you don't feel that. Like, neighbours are nice to you. People don't stop you on the street because you look different and treat you differently. At least that was my experience. But where it was quite hard, hard I think, for me was in high school. I think high school can suck for so many people. But when you are one of when you're one of only two non-white people in a school of twelve hundred, you stand out. When you have a name that teachers can't pronounce, when even though there's only two of me, two of you, there's me and a guy called Paul who was a Sri Lankan kid, you would think it would be easier for people to not confuse us. That didn't happen. We got confused a lot of the time. And then in two thousand one, when nine eleven happened, and all of a sudden being Osman Faruqi with an Arab name and a Muslim background wasn't just this weird oddity, it was also a threat. It was the first time that I really experienced vitriolic kind of like racial abuse. And What did that look like? It was kids calling me a terrorist in school, the classic Australian phrase, go back to where you come from, calling me a dirty Arab N-word. Stuff that didn't really make sense to me because, and not that this is the point, but I'm not Arabic, my family's from Pakistan, but... uh, you know, a, a subset of racist people or people who express those sorts of views didn't matter. I was the closest thing to the 9-11 hijackers or Arab terrorists they had and the the media political frenzy being whipped up against Muslims, which has continued to this day. I was the, the closest outlet for them. I was the closest thing they had to direct their, their anger towards. And it manifested in the worst ways in that way but even in more subtle ways of just constantly being the outer and like not looking like anyone else, not feeling like anyone else. When I first started to grow facial hair, yeah, brown dudes, we get it before everyone else. Um, relentless bullying for that from all sorts of people. I'm still which... waiting for my... <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a combination of just like growing up looking different, but then also growing up looking different in an environment where like that's the one thing you didn't want to be. And it made me very confused about my identity and who I was. And, you know, I surfed every day. I played cricket. I was as Australian as you could get. But because of my name and my skin color and my religious background, I was never going to be, I was never going to belong. It was very clear to me that I was never going to fit in. How did that affect how you performed at school? Were you you a good student in that environment? No, I did very badly at school, actually. I'm Uh, surprised at that. Yeah, I think it was because, I think it drove my parents um, a bit mad because, they were very, you know, they both went to university and for a lot of migrant families, education is very important. Um, and, you know, I think I had natural aptitude and an interest in reading and like learning about the world, which is a thing that, you know, if you have that as a kid, you tend to do quite well. But I think I was so frustrated and so angry and so anxious about what I was kind of dealing with and what was happening around the world and how, how I was manifesting that in my day-to-day life I got into a lot of trouble at school. Like, I think a lot of my friends who see me now as a professional guy who's kind of got his stuff together and is working at the ABC, that surprised. But I was suspended. Um, I, you know, was regularly held in front of the principal's office. What were you suspended for? Uh, I I mean, I don't want to list all the things I got in trouble for. Some things that I'm not, (laughs) that I'm a bit ashamed of. But uh, uh, skipping school was was one of the things that uh, getting into fights at school, Um, like physical altercations. Um, kind of the stuff that the dumb stuff that teenage boys do, nothing that ended, you know, terribly. And I'm not an angry fighting guy. I wasn't running around picking fights, but when you're in an environment of like hostile bullying, at some point 
that frustration sort of boils over and sometimes it leads to you wanting to avoid it by just removing yourself from that situation or seeing something like school as a terrible environment that you want to be a part in. And sometimes when people, you know, hurl abuse at you long enough, you, you know, you push them and they push you and you get into a, a schoolyard scuffle. And, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to say that I'm some sort of hectic badass, but um, all those things I think kind of combined to make school not a super pleasant experience and one that I think I underperformed in as a result. There's the uh, origin story of Osman Faruqi <laughs> in brief. What do we want to play for Port Macquarie? What can we play first? So the first track um, I chose is is a track called Beware of the Boys by Punjabi MC featuring Jay-Z. And why that is relevant to this period of my life, I think, is because it was the first time something from my culture, you know, my family's from the Punjab in Pakistan and the song is in the language Punjabi, which my parents speak. It was the first time something from my culture became popular amongst everyone, particularly when Jay-Z jumped in that remix, you know, it went to number one all around the world and all of a sudden all these kids who love hip-hop music and love pop culture were singing a Punjabi song. So I'd been made fun of my whole life, my parents made fun of for their accents, the food I ate was, was you know, a reason to tease me and everyone's dancing and singing along to like my culture's music I found that completely weird and jarring but also I was weirdly proud of it so it's a the song has a special place for me as a result. As soon as the beat drop, we got the streets locked overseas with Punjabi MC and the rock. I came to see the mommies in a spot on the count of three. Drop your body like it's hot. One, young, two, you, one, two, three. Young hoes, a snake charmer. Move your body like a snake mama. Make me want to put the snake on ya. I'm on my eighth summer. Still hot. Young's the eighth wonder. All I do is get bread. Yeah, I take wonder. I take one of your chicks straight from from under your armpit, the black Brad Pitt. I'm act till six in the AM. All day I'm P-I-M-P. I am simply attached to the track like simply. It's simply good. Young ho, infinitely ho. International hope, been having a flow before Ben Latin got Manhattan to blow. Before Ronald Reagan got Manhattan to blow. Before I was cabin it there back and forth. Bro, we had it all day. Poppy in the hallway. Cop one on for Simon to give you more yay. Yeah, but that's another story. But for now, mama, turn it around and let the boy play. Don't stop. 
there that's Punjabi and C and yes a verse there uh, from uh, uh, Jay-Z of course brought in today on Out of the Box by Osman Fariki the journalist uh, is with me for this hour and this show on podcast live on your radio. Oz you wanted to be an engineer after school was it a expectation that you'd follow the family trade? Yeah, I would say expectation more than desire for sure. (laughs) So both my parents are engineers. Uh, Both my grandparents were engineers. Every single uncle I have is an engineer. Uh, One of my aunties is an engineer. (laughs) It's it's, it's a big thing for for a lot of Pakistani people. Um, And, you know, I kind of knew that I didn't want to be an engineer um, when I was going to uni, but I also didn't really know what I did want to do. So my parents just said, do engineering and figure the rest of it out. My dad was very um, utilitarian on this approach. He said, look, if whatever you decide you want to be, like, just do an engineering degree, because at least that way you learn a bunch of stuff that's useful. You've got a backup career and it's, you know, gives you skills and stuff that are like deployable across a whole bunch of industries. I did... No one tells you, right? No one tells you that engineering is just a really fancy word for lots of maths. Um, I forced myself to do maths in school. I really wasn't good at it. Um, I failed my first year of maths at university and had to spend my first summer back on campus doing um, remedial maths classes. Uh, and that should have been a sign that this is not a pathway that you know my career was going to go down. I ended up supplementing my engineering degree with an arts degree, majoring in politics and international relations. And I found studying those two things alongside each other really interesting because the engineering was so hard and such a struggle and I wasn't very good at it and I didn't really know what I would do with it. But I loved reading. I loved writing essays. I loved arguing in tutorials about global politics and communism. And um, And communism. And and communism. Um, And... I just found that so much more satisfying and I had no idea where that would lead me. You know, what do you do with a degree in Marxism and international relations? It's not really that clear in, you know, in Australia and this part of uh, history. Before you stepped on, did, did you find student politics? I did, yes. Yeah. So or, or did student politics find you? Might or, be a better way of asking yeah, that question. So a few things happened to me at uni that I think helped me get to where I am. I think studying, and it's a bit of a cliche, but I think that like what you do outside of the classroom at uni can be so much more satisfying and rewarding than what you do in the classroom. Um, but I got involved in an education campaign at university. I can't even remember what the exact campaign was, but university bureaucrats trying to do something terrible and I went to a barbecue and signed a petition and one thing led to another and I was getting involved in um, the Education Action Collective and organizing rallies and then I was running for the student union and I was running as president of the student union. So all of that happened and I realized, wow, there's all these ways that I can like express myself and do things that are trying to make university and the world a better place that aren't like involving spreadsheets and calculating how much cement you need to build a bridge, which is essentially what engineering is all about. I'm interested in the student politics thing because a lot of your identity today mm. is political. Mm. It's the, the way you, that you mm. present yourself to the world as a, as a journalist. Um, did you already have a strong sense of politics before that or was that kind of dragged out of you in that culture i think i had i think i had a strong sense of politics you know as a teenager and i think you know growing up 
in the era of post 9-11, the invasion of, of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, the invasion of Iraq led to the biggest social protests I think we've seen in Australia in my lifetime. And even in Port Macquarie, where I was, you know, thousands of people marched to the town green, uh, which is the main sort of park in the, in the city. And that's not a town known for its activism. It's not a town known for marches. And so it was very real to see that and then turn on your TV that night and see a million people marching in Sydney and see millions of people marching around the world. And I realized, wow, there's bad stuff that happens that makes you angry and upset. And there are ways that you can get involved and do stuff about it. And at the same time, you know, I was becoming aware of climate change. And again, if you grew up in a town on the coast, which is dealing with coastal erosion and rising sea levels and drought, it's hard to avoid those realities. You know, we saw them um, on the front line. And those two things, you know, were playing at me when I was 15, 16. But it wasn't until I got to university that I realized, oh, I can do stuff about this. Like, I can get involved with other young people who care about these things like I do. And we can, like, you know, have campaigns and we can have rallies and we can talk to our fellow students. Um, so I guess I'd always had this desire to express my politics or to try and, like, instead of just getting angry about things, do something tangible. And being at university, I found the outlet for that through student politics. And I also found the outlet for journalism and writing. I got um, lucky enough to have a column in the student paper that I got to just wax lyrical about all sorts of, you know, contemporary social topics like lockout laws, um, like, you know, university funding, like, um, like the climate. And then I got to edit the student paper. So I was really lucky to be able to express and find my interest in those different things. I was interested to read that in some way your you so your mum is is green senator yeah. marine faruqi she is um uh she found politics at the same time as you mm. rather than you being inculcated in a political home um how did that play out did you drag her in or did you drag her drag, drag yeah so did he did you drag her in or was it the other way around or yeah but it's a, such a good question we actually argue about this because i claim that i was the one so my so my parents um both in pakistan come from families that are quite politically active but um what's quite common for for migrants when they come to a country like australia is they kind of you know disavow themselves of politics we're in a new country it's not really our place to shake things up we just want to make a life for ourselves and yeah, so I didn't grow up in a household, you know, we talked about the world, but it wasn't like, you know, this is how you are politically active and, you know, this is how you do things and this is the way to, you know, to express yourself and these are the organizations you join. Mum became a politician much later after she'd been an academic and an engineer and worked for local government. So those conversations weren't the ones that we were having at a household, but it was around that same time, 2005, 2006, when I was getting quite passionate about the war in Iraq and climate change that I said, no, I want to start getting involved. I want to go to rallies. I want to go to meetings. And I think that I convinced mum to take me to these things. And she also went along. She thinks that she decided to go along and like try to convince me to come along. I don't know. We have to get her on the show to find out the truth. <laughs> One day, maybe. Um, <laughs> mutual pride, nonetheless. Um, has having a parent in the public light, particularly uh, in a political sphere. Mm. Has that been challenging? I think it's been challenging in in interesting, in different ways. Like uh, when mum became a senator, it was actually at a time when I was not really involved in politics. Like I, you know, had 
what useful formative experiences working in politics, but also quite quickly realized that it wasn't an environment I wanted to spend the rest of my life. And as I sort of tagged out and started to build my career elsewhere, that was when mum got elected. And I think what is hard for me, like I'm very proud of my mum. I don't agree with, you know, she's a green senator and a lot of issues I do agree with her on and a lot of issues I don't necessarily agree with her on. Um, Can I ask, what are they? I think it's just about the approach that, that oh, there's, it's two big levels. I think my faith in parliamentary democracy has diminished in recent years. I think just seeing the stagnation in Canberra, and I think so many people are responsible for that, to be honest. I think like, you know, I don't think everyone's equally responsible, but I think that I don't find any political party inspiring in Australia. Um, I don't think many, I think lots of people find them uninspiring. And I, I think about the exciting political movements we have around the world, whether it's, you know, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, even Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who seem to have found a way to be human beings, to be normal people and have policies that excite and mobilize, you know, the masses. I don't see anyone in Australia doing that, if I'm really honest with you. That's not a sledge on you, Mum. I think you do great stuff, but you're part of a political party and part of an organisation that I think, you know, is as culpable in the sense of, you know, the decay Australian politics is feeling as almost anyone else. Um, so the, the the tension I feel around, like, even though I have those feelings, I don't hold those against her. She's my mum and I love her and I'm very proud of what she does. But where it gets hard for me is seeing the kind of abuse that she cops as a Muslim woman who takes very strong stances on things like anti-racism, on resisting Pauline Hanson. She gets death threats regularly. The day after Christchurch, you know, people rung up her office and quoted the shooter's manifesto at her. She's had, uh, you know, extra AFP security that no, uh, you know, non-government minister has ever had before because of the target she has. And she just rolls into work every day, does it. She challenges those guys. And it's very inspiring for me to have a mum who does that. But it also scares me a bit because, you know, we live in a moment where, like, I couldn't say I'd be shocked if there was a violent act of political terrorism in Australia from the far right. I think we've seen it in, we saw it in New Zealand. We've seen it in the UK. We've seen it in the United States. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it got to that stage in Australia but I would still be devastated, but I just think that that's the direction we're heading in. We have to pull out and go to another song now, Oz. What do you want to play second off the top? So this song um, is Renegades of Funk by Rage Against the Machine. And I chose this song because it, again, it's part of this era of my political development. I learned so much about the world and politics through music, particularly through uh, Rage Against the Machine. And this song in particular is such a great, anti-authoritarian you know anthem but also it's a cover of an africa bambata song and it was my way into discovering you know 1980s 1990s new york hip-hop as well no matter how hard you try you can't stop us now no matter how hard you try you can't stop us now Jesus. 
Take that, FBI Radio listener. That's Rage Against the Machine coming right at you, brought in uh, to Out of the Box today. This podcast and live on your radio, of course, by Osman Faruqi. Uh, the journalist is my guest today. Oz, about three years ago, um, you're ed- editing the online news site Junkie, uh, very live on Twitter, and Mark Latham comes at you. What, what did he say? Mark Latham, uh, who's had many different iterations, you know, f- first came across the scene as the leader of the Labour Party, unsuccessfully led them to the 2004 election, then became a columnist and a pundit and a TV host, is now the leader of One Nation in New South Wales. But in between all of that, he had a, a TV show on Sky News called Mark Latham's Outsiders. He ended up getting booted off that after a series of controversies, and he made that show solo uh, as a Facebook streaming show. And on one episode of that show, he called myself and uh, Yasmin Abdul-Majid, the former broadcaster and author, um, uh, terrorists. He, he accused us of uh, giving sucker and support to the likes of Islamic State. He didn't like a conversation that we were having on Twitter about, bizarrely, of all things, the citizenship crisis in Australia that was affecting uh, a number of MPs and our comments on that, that it was ironic that it was all kind of white Anglo MPs being caught up in this citizenship crisis. Obviously, what he was really mad about was the fact that two people with like, you know, some prominence in the media come from Muslim backgrounds, had the audacity to talk about these issues. His uh, evidence for accusing us of supporting terrorism, terrorism was extremely flimsy. And it was quite a shocking moment for me because even though I've been involved in like the robust argy-bargy of online debate, having someone of that prominence, that profile, that stature call you a terrorist and have that viewed by tens of thousands of people, have that shared and liked and commented by tens of thousands of people is quite scary um, because if people don't know who you are and you're being blasted as being a supporter of genocidal terrorism, what is that going to bring down on you? But then also, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it reminded me of, you know, when I was in school and the kinds of things people would say to me. And I thought, well, hang on, why am I like, I'm a journalist. I understand that there's intense discussions that happen, but there are also boundaries to those discussions. And being called a terrorist, if you come from a background like mine, if you grew up in the era that I did, it hits you somewhere very primal. And it's a reminder that you don't belong here that you're an outsider, that you're scary, that we think that you're subhuman almost. And it was very upsetting to experience all of those things one morning. Whose idea was it to take Mark Latham to court? So when I woke up and saw that story, uh, and there was already a lot of um, Twitter conversation about it, and a number of people had messaged me and said, this is defamatory. You know, you should do something about this. And as a journalist who's trained in defamation law, I... You know, I have an understanding of what's defamatory. Yeah, yeah. You know what you can and can't say. Like, you know, for example, you can't call certain far-right politicians racists, even if you think that they are, even if you think you've got strong evidence that they are. Australia notoriously has quite stringent defamation laws. And so I I tweeted out, you know, any defamation lawyers out there slide into my DMs. Um, And as a quick aside, that that line came up in court. Um, The judge in my case didn't understand what DMs were and thought that they have, may have been a, a, a abbreviation for Doc Martens. And he thought that I was asking, he, he was curious as to why I wanted a defamation lawyer to slide into my Doc Martens shoes. Oh um, my God. Which is, you know, a fascinating observation. There's a lot in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But I spoke. I ended up speaking to um, a, a guy, Josh Bornstein, who's a lawyer with Morris Blackburn in Melbourne, who does a lot of social justice work. And we had a conversation and we went through the pros and cons. And, you know, the other thing about being a journalist is you don't, you're instinctively not into defamation law. Defamation law, in my experience, when I've tried to report on things like Me Too accusations, on allegations of corruption, on crime matters, defamation law is a barrier to you exposing bad people. So for me as a journalist to use defamation law was a weird thing to go through. But all the conversations I had ended up with me saying, well, no, if I'm at a point where I've got the resources to stop someone who has said so many bad things to so many people and draw a line in the sand and send a message that people like him can't just attack people with impunity and there are going to be consequences for that, that that was worth taking that decision. Um, and that ultimately is what pushed me into deciding to initiate defamation proceedings. So how, how did the proceedings happen? How, what did you actually have to prove in court? Do you show up in court? Are you face-to-face with Mark Latham? Is that how that so works? The very first thing, and I guess this is the thing that people don't necessarily understand about defamation law, is you don't make a decision to go to court. You initially make a decision to write a letter and say, please remove this. I think it's defamatory. And then they decide to respond to that letter or not. In this case, he didn't. And then you say, okay, well, now it's time to escalate it by starting proceedings in the federal court. And even at that point, you don't think this is going to go to trial. You think, well, you know, he didn't want to deal with this, but now he's going to have to pay for lawyers and defend this in court. So maybe he'll just pull down the video. That's all we wanted was the video to be pulled down and for there not to be a video out there of Mark Latham calling me a terrorist supporter. But he wanted to go to court. So he went to trial. Um, I didn't go to court. My barristers and my lawyers have such a funny phrase to say now. My barristers and my lawyers represented me in court. Um, it didn't come to a, a head-to-head situation. Mark Latham did go to court on a number of occasions, but he was generally represented by his lawyers and they argued out the case. Um, the case ended up settling before a judgment was reached, but the indications, you know, if you look at the reporting now, Mark Latham's defense against why he called me a terrorist was a very long document that was ripped apart by the judge. The judge actually rejected his defense. What, what was it in brief? So he had two main angles to it. It was a 120-page document, I think, that went through what he called the history of white genocide in the West, talking about the Roman invasion of Britain and how that was a link that, you know, people who make jokes about white people on the internet are then as culpable potentially of genocide because of what's happened historically. It was a very long bow to draw that had nothing to do with what I had said or what Yasmin had said. The other thing that he did was he submitted 20 pages of tweets that I'd made. He'd essentially gone control F, find every tweet Osman's ever made about white people. And the funniest part of all of this, in hindsight in particular, is that like that they were published on the front page of the Australian, they're published in the Daily Telegraph, as though I was some sort of like, you know, figure who who despised white... You know, one of those tweets, for example, was, um, I don't hold the door open for white men because I think they've had enough privilege in their lives, right? <laughs> or like, sunscreen is, is evidence that white people don't belong in Australia, you know? Like, you can disagree with that. You can think it's dumb. You don't have to think it's funny. But the idea that that is somehow evidence that I am a anti-white supporter of terrorists and genocide, I think is is a hard thing to connect. And ultimately the judge, you know, by dismissing the entire document, seemed to agree with that analysis. So at that stage, I think it became quite obvious that he didn't have much of a leg to stand on. And, you know, we he came back to the table and said, okay, I think it's time that we settle this. What do you want? And 
we put forward a, a settlement offer that was ultimately accepted that involved, um, you know, the most important thing, a removal of what he had said, an agreement to not post it again, and a sum of money to send the message both to him, but to others that there are going to be consequences if you do this. You can't just smear people and attack them and make up lies about them and get away with it. There's going to be a punishment for that. Oz, what can we play uh, for taking Mark Latham to court and winning? Well, there's only one song that I think about when I think about this story, and it's by a fantastic musician you may have heard of called Rihanna, and the song is called Bitch Better Have My Money. Bitch better have my money Y'all should know me well enough Bitch better have my money Please don't call me on my blood Pay me what you owe me Like blah blah blah, pay me what you want it. Don't act like you forgot. Bitch better have my money. Bitch better have my money. Pay me what you want it. Bitch, better have my money. So that was, of course, Rihanna. This show is out of the box. And today that song was brought in by a journalist, Osman Faruqi. He is my guest today. Oz, just over a year ago, uh, you're meeting a new girlfriend's parents for the first time. And sometime during dinner, you get a call. Can you take me there? Yeah, I got a phone call from a, a, a number that I didn't recognize and I answered it and it was a voice I didn't recognize. And they just said to me, they said, they asked me if I was Osman Faruqi and I said, yes. And they really wanted to make sure that I was. And they said that they knew that what I, they knew what I had done and that I should watch myself because they were going to come for me. And I was quite 
shaken. I How do you respond to that in the moment? Yeah, well, the you know, it's sort of weird. You just kind of go into this zone of just like, hello, who is this? Sorry, who is this? You almost think that even though they asked who I was at the start of the convo, you got, must have the wrong number. Like, who are you? Who are you talking to? I, you know, I couldn't think of what I had done in my life to get me to a point to receive a phone call like that. Um, they wouldn't tell me who they were, but they definitely wanted to be talking to Osman Faruqi. So I ended up hanging up the phone call and within a few seconds or within a minute, um, I received more phone calls. I received text messages. Um, and it was a kind of constant bombardment that night of messages of abuse. People threatened to kill me. People threatening uh, to come to my place of work and to stand around with a brick and make sure that I was punished for what I had done. And I did not know what was going on. How long did it take you to work out what had happened? So I ended up disabling my phone to stop these messages going in. At that stage, I still thought that some mistake had happened. I didn't know why people had my number. I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, but the next morning, um, uh, you know, I, what I had done the night before was, before I turned off my phone, was just tweet that this was happening, partly as a way to just express that this was crazy and weird, and partly as a way to sort of figure out if the internet knew what was happening. The internet can be very good at figuring things out. Um, in the morning, I found out that it had uh, someone... Uh, called Avi Yemeni, who was a uh, quite high-profile far-right activist mm. in Australia, had posted my number on his Facebook page, which at the time had over 100,000 followers, and encouraged people to call me um, because he wasn't happy with something I'd posted on Twitter. There's a constant pattern emerging in this conversation, as you can tell, of people not being very impressed with what I post on Twitter. Mm. So this, what happened the next day... How long after that did the abuse continue for? And what was the nature of it? Yeah, it continued for weeks. I uh, It continues now, to be honest, even though I've kind of, it's been more than a year since then. But what happened then was for the first time, I had become a target of, the far right in Australia are not as coordinated and as strategic as they would like to be, but particularly online, there is a lot of sophistication and a lot of overlap and they have learned how to weaponize the internet. And I, in that instant, had become an example of that weaponization where one particular individual, but an individual that has links to various other individuals and groups, including you know political parties that have run for parliament, including more fringe political plays, big Facebook groups, small Facebook groups, I had become a target of them as someone who was brown, was from a Muslim background, was an ABC journalist uh, who had expressed views that they didn't agree with online, a huge overlap of the things that they don't like. And they had decided that I needed to be punished for that. And so they made sure that a lot of people knew my phone number, they knew where I worked, they even posted the exact part of the suburb that I lived in at the time. And, and that led to people threatening to kill me, threatening to follow me home, threatening to wait outside my house... And just constant messages of abuse on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on email, people calling work. Uh, it was a pretty relentless uh, period. What, what happened when you went to the cops? So I 
decided to call the police because I had never dealt with anything this extreme before. I was quite naive about what I thought the police could do, but I spoke to ABC security and some friends who have dealt with similar sorts of issues and eventually realized that there are actually laws against this. You can't harass people. You can't threaten people either on the phone or on the internet. Um, so I, I asked to meet with the police and ended up being extremely dismayed by their response. The police either had no knowledge of these laws or a very little, very little interest in enforcing them in any way. They also didn't really seem to understand why this was a big deal. One police officer even told me that when I presented them with, you know, all the evidence of screenshots and logs and voicemail recordings said, oh, in this country, we have something called freedom of speech. So I don't know why you want the police to stop this which shook me for a number of reasons. The predominant one being that we famously don't have anything called freedom of speech in Australia. We have no constitutional protection of freedom of speech. But aside from that philosophical debate, we have a number of laws that govern what you can and can't say. And we have a law that says you can't menace, threaten or harass people using a carriage service, which is a phone or the internet. Um, The police took a lot of notes. And then when the detective called me later, he informed me that, you know, there just wasn't enough evidence to pursue any of these people, despite the fact that they had evidence of the messages, they had phone numbers. In some instances, I'd already looked up some of these people and given them names as well. They didn't speak to any of these people. They just decided to not investigate the issue. You're still here. You're still on Twitter. You're still being vocal, Hmm. um, being given new platforms. So if their tactic was with the intention of shutting you down, it certainly didn't work. But has this saga affected you in other ways? I mean, I'm back and being vocal now, but I was um, I was not active for a very long time. You know, I I d- deactivated all of my social media accounts. I was you know been off social media for about ten months, and only very 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 recently have come back online. I stopped writing publicly. I stopped going on TV. I stopped going on radio. Which, if you're a journalist who has made a career from writing things and investigating things and talking about them online, on TV, on radio. It's quite debilitating. Um, I ended up being diagnosed with a number of mental health disorders that I'm still being medicated for, spending thousands of dollars on therapy, um, getting taxis to and from work to avoid being in public. It, it did take, it's taken literally from that moment last year to about a month ago for me to feel comfortable enough to talk publicly again about these sorts of issues, it has been a very heavy thing to deal with. And even now I find myself second guessing certain things. And I, there's a lot of things that I used to do that I wouldn't do anymore. On a very basic level, I've completely scrubbed my online presence. My uh, personal social media is much more locked down and private than it's ever been before. I don't accept, you know, requests from people I don't know. Uh, But, you know, yeah, like you're right. I am now in a lucky position where I'm on the other side of that and I am back on Twitter and I am, you know, getting opportunities to do things and I'm really happy and lucky to have those opportunities, though I still wish I didn't have to kind of go through hell and back to get to this point. Um, I still find certain things to be quite triggering and upsetting, you know, people talking about certain issues. I find it really... I think this is a dilemma that we're in, is that one of the biggest stories of our time is the rise of the far right in Australia and around the world. And I think Christchurch has brought that home in so many ways. I I never wanted to be a journalist who covered race and the far right. I kind of got into journalism because I cared about 
reviewing music and film and then have just kind of had a windy career like so many of us have. But I found that these issues were happening and no one else is really talking about it um, because most of our industry doesn't really have skin in the game, uh, so to speak. And so I decided to, and that made me a target. And now I find myself in this weird position where I'm asked by the ABC or by others to like cover, you know, the rise of the far right, cover white nationalist movements. But the consequences of doing that are enormous for someone like me. So it's a very tricky thing to navigate. Let's go to another track now. Uh, what are we going to play for uh, the process of yeah. discovery that comes through something so traumatic as that? This is a much more downbeat song than the others that I've chosen. It's it's by Kanye West. It's called uh, Saint Pablo. It's from his album The Life of Pablo. And it, um, you know, I have very little in common with Kanye West um, for very obvious reasons. I'm not a rapper. I don't live in Calabasas. Um, but... This song, you know, I think it captures the intensity of going through difficult situations, in particular difficult situations that involve family, friends, loved ones, and the internet. And I think a lot of people who have experienced anything similar um, will find some sort of connection in this tune. Yeah. 908. L.A. time. Back in the lab and shit. My wife said... I can't say no to nobody And at this rate we gon' both die broke Got friends that ask me for money knowing I'm in debt And like my wife said, I still didn't say no People tryna say I'm going crazy on Twitter My friend's best advice was to stay low I guess it's hard to decipher all of the bills Especially when you got family members on payroll The media said it was outlandish spending The media said he's way out of control I just feel like I'm the only one not Pretending I'm not out of control, I'm just not in a control. I know I'm the most influential. That time cover was just confirmation. This generation's closest thing to Einstein. So don't worry about me, I'm fine. I can see a thousand years from now in real life. Skate on a paradigm and shift it when I feel like. Control conventional thought, don't need to question. I know it's antiquated, so sometimes I get aggressive. Thank God for Jay Electra, he down with the mission. Did it with no permission, on our own conditions. Most blacks with money have been beaten to submission. Yeezy with the big house did it way different. Never listen to Hollywood producers. Don't stare at money too long. It's Medusa, the ultimate Gemini has survived. I wasn't supposed to make it past 25. Yeah, you're looking at the church in the night sky. Wondering where the dog's gonna say hi. Oh, you looking at the church in the night sky. And you wonder where's God in the nightlife. Yeah, you're looking at the church in the night sky. Wondering where the dog's gonna say hi. I've been waking the spirits of millions more to come A million illegally downloaded my truth over the drums I believe in the children Listen to the kids, bro, if the phone ringing Go and get your kids, ho Brother Don Muhammad told the minister about the presentation he sat back and smiled. Black on black lies is worse than black on black crime. The Jews share their truth on how to make a dime. Most black men couldn't balance a checkbook, but buy a new car talking about how my neck looked. Well, 
It all looks great. 400 years later, we buying our own chains. The light is before us, brothers, so the devil working hard. Real family stick together and see through the mirage. The smoke screens, perceptions of false reality. Who the real owner if your boss gets a salary? I am one with the people. I am one with the people. I've been woke up from a light and man's dream Checking Instagram comments to crowdsource my self-esteem Let me not say too much or do too much Cause if I'm up way too much, I'm out of touch I'm praying an out-of-body experience will happen So the people can see my light, now it's not just rapping God, I have humbled myself before the court Dropped my ego when confidence was my last resort I, kn I know you got a plan, I know I'm on your beams One set of footsteps, you was carrying me When I turned on the news and they was Burying me. One set of footsteps you was carrying me. When I was negotiating with Apple, it was larrying me. Told Tim Cook to call me. I was scary to see. I would have took a hundred million and gave 20 to hope. I heard it's the way they did it when we only had the stove. But it's better that I stayed at home with my folks. Cause if Jay a billionaire, then I'ma never go broke. Only thing I ask is next time I'm on stage, we all go. We all go. Not just by myself, looking for niggas like where's Waldo? She got the same shoes as my wife, but she copped them at all, though. Modern day MJ with an off the wall flow. Night light, walk all over me. Walk all over me. Delivering everything I've ever said to your brain. Fly, fly, fly overseas. Fly overseas, oh. Anywhere, everything but in between oh. And you're looking at the church in the night sky Wondering where God's gonna say hi Oh, you're looking at the church in the night sky And you're wondering where's God in your nightlife Yeah, and you're looking at the church in the night sky Wondering where God's gonna say hi Oh, you're looking at the church in the night sky And you're wondering where's God in your nightlife Please face me when I speak Please say to me something before you leave You've been treating me like I'm invisible Not visible to you Oh, the invisible truth stays sober And I understand the games you play Understand, understand Understand I'm standing on the road And I promise I, I wouldn't fall anymore Crying at the bar, I wishing that you saw my scars, man. I wishing that you came down here and stood by me and look at me like you knew me. But I feel so loud, like I don't know anyone except the night sky above. And you're looking at the church in the night sky, wondering where God's gonna say hi. Oh, you're looking at the church in the night sky, and you wondering where's God in your nightlife. Yeah, and you're looking at the church in the night sky Wondering where God's gonna say hi Oh, you're looking at the church in the night sky And you wondering where's God in your nightlife The always exciting Kanye West there on your FBI radio. Uh, that song, St. Pablo, off the album, The Life of Pablo. 
Uh, brought in today to Out of the Box by Osman Fariki. The journalist is my guest for a few moments longer. And don't forget, you can catch this conversation and many others uh, on podcast wherever you happen to cop those. Oz, is, is white nationalism on the rise in Australia from where you're standing or is it just becoming more visible online? It's a very, it's a fascinating question. And as you're saying it now, I'm realizing that my perspective on this is shifting almost day in and day out. And why I say that is not is not because I'm not sure whether white nationalism is becoming more of a pressing issue at the moment. But the question for me is like was when we when you ask, is it becoming more of an issue? It's like, what's our benchmark? What are we comparing it against? If you compare it against the origin of this country, 1788, and the invasion by white settlers and the genocide of the indigenous black population, You can argue that it's not a rise, it's a continuation of something that is the core of this country. And that is a a tension in my head that I'm still grappling with is, yes, we are seeing a rise of organized political groups. We're seeing the re-entry of organized far-right political plays in our parliament to an extent that we've actually never seen before. And that is, I think, quite terrifying given the links between people like Pauline Hanson to Fraser Anning and Fraser Anning to the Christchurch shooter. These things are all linked and they're all very scary because they're not fringe players. They're players involved in quite terrible things. They're in our parliaments. They're on our streets. But you take a step back and you realize that we didn't call it white nationalism. We didn't call it the far right. But these ideologies of racial supremacy, of white supremacy, of the superiority of the white race and the the, the space that they deserve in this country have been embedded in Australia since day one since 1788, and then right throughout to the fact that the first piece of legislation passed when Australia was federated was the White Australia Act. The fact that when women were given the right to vote in 1902, which is celebrated because Australia was the first federal jurisdiction to give women the right to vote after New Zealand, we don't often talk about the fact that that same act stripped the right to vote from all people of colour, including women of colour. So we don't talk about the fact that actually it was white women who were given the right to vote. Indigenous women didn't have the right to vote. Pacifica women didn't have the right to vote. Asian, South Asian, African women didn't have the right to vote. Uh, And, you know, the white Australia policy only being dismantled ultimately and finally by Whitlam in the 70s, it's more, I think, it's more interesting to see the last few decades of Australia when we saw the rise of multiculturalism and the rise of political multiculturalism. That feels like an aberration. So even though to people of our generation, it's like, well, Australia was this cosmopolitan melting point pot and now white nationalism is, is coming up and it's scary. Actually, the more research I do, the more I think, the more I talk to people about this, that kind of, you know, golden era of multiculturalism, you know, where Fraser let in the Vietnamese refugees and Bob Hawke talked about a tolerant multicultural society to the late 90s where Howard started to crack down on this stuff. That period is an abnormal period. And what we're seeing is a return of the bad stuff. doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it feel any better. It's still very bad because you'd like to think that in 2019, we had learnt from white Australia. We'd learnt from 1788, but I'm not convinced we have. Could the flip of that be that things are better than they've ever been then in some way? I've been thinking about this um, in the last couple of weeks, particularly Mm. in the wake of the UK election, Mm. in that it feels like the left is in a complete decline, democracy is in decline. Mm. The things that the new left have been fighting for since the 60s and 70s have just kind of fallen Mm. away. 
But it's interesting that you went to that because that's kind of what I'm looking at it. But and maybe that's because I come at it from a position mm. of privilege. The reverse of that is that things are actually better, and that uh, progress just takes a really, really long time. I think. I think. Look, I think that's. I think this idea of progress is interesting because I think humans are optimists at heart. Like I believe that, despite so much of bad stuff that happens in the world. I don't think humans inherently are created with this desire to do bad things. I think we want to strive to be better and we strive for a sense of harmony and equilibrium and happiness for the people around us. But I think one of the things that seems really obvious to me, looking at both Australia but also global politics, is progress isn't inevitable and we can be moving backwards. I think like things are obviously better for so many categories of people now than they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. But I think for the first time in a long time, things feel like they're slipping back. I think the fact that the way our immigration policy has become more brutal and more harsh over the past 10 years and the 10 years before that and the 10 years before that, despite bigger public outcry and despite bigger public campaigns against it, we're not getting better, we're getting worse despite the fact that in the United States, which has historically had quite an expansive immigration policy, particularly, you know, on its southern border, has now decided to imitate Australia's immigration policy. The fact that countries in the in Europe, in the European Union and in the UK are, are saying that Australia's model of cracking down on migration is the model that we should be emulating. I find it hard to take solace from that. That makes me hard to be optimistic. It might be a good note to finish on. You mentioned earlier in the episode that uh, you were sceptically critical of your mum's parliamentary strategy for creating social change. Yeah. Um, do you have a preferred method for social change? And before we go straight to the streets, mm. um, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily seem to be working. If we look at the issue of climate change, mm. particularly in Australia, mm. and this is why like, I'm excited that these rallies are still happening mm. with the smoke and everything, but we had half, you know, half a million kids out and adults yeah. out in, yeah. in the streets of Australia four or six months ago, whenever that the, the strike was. Um, and, it almost seems like nothing's come of it. And on the back of the bushfires as well, mm. Scott Morrison has now gone up in the polls. I'm feeling particularly <laughs> helpless right now. I think a lot of people are. You're a kind of practitioner in this space. Mm. What do you think? I think if you if this was five or ten years ago and I was younger, brasher and more arrogant, I would have said to you, Joe, I totally know what the answer is and it's this. But... I don't know what the answer is. And I know that that's sometimes a difficult thing when you're someone who loves to critique other people is when you don't offer up your own solution. <laughs> but ultimately, one of the reasons why I ended up working in this space as a journalist is because I didn't have the answers, but I thought that there were important things for us to talk about and there are important ways to talk about certain topics and ways to engage people that haven't been engaged. And that's why I do what I do more. I don't think that journalism can save the world or storytelling can save the world, but it is the fundamental prism through which we understand the world around us. And I think that is the, the base level thing that we need to do before we figure out how we fix these problems. But, but to give you a more direct answer on your point or on your question about parliament versus protest, 
please, I'm not a reductive, you know, Trotskyist who says that forget, forget camera, let's just march out on the streets. I think for me, even if it's about parliamentarism, even if it's about electoral democracy, there are ways to do it better than what our, all of our politicians are offering it, us now. And I think the sharpest thing I'll say about the Greens in particular is that I think at a moment when so many people, particularly young people, are looking for something exciting and visionary and radical, even as a political prospect for them to vote for, I think that they are giving Australia something that is bland and boring and not that. And I'm not at all holding my mum responsible for that, but she is a Greens MP, so she has to suck up what I say about the Greens. Um, and I think that's a missed opportunity. And I don't know whether the, you know they would ever win government off the back of a visionary platform. I don't know. I just think that we need to do something different. And I think people in Australia seem so reluctant to take that radical step, but I think it would be very interesting if they did. Well, here's to very slowly working it out. <laughs> what do we want to play to finish this? So this is an optimistic note to go out on. This song is by an artist, Cardi B, who I love. And as a little, it's not even a humble brag, Joey, this is just a brag. I do believe that I was the first person to play Cardi B on the Australian airwaves right here at FBI radio. Um, when Bodak Yellow came out, I was in New York. I was at the clubs. Uh, the clubs were bumping it. No one in Australia had heard about it. I came back on back chat and said, there's a song, Bodak Yellow by Cardi B. We've got to get it out of there. So I love the idea that I get to go out on this track. Um, I like it by Cardi B. It's fun. It's a bop. It's a summer jam. Summer's coming up. Enjoy the tune. Oz Freaky, thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for making me... No thanks for making me open up about stuff that I had no desire to open up about. <laughs> Good luck with, with Melbourne and, and everything that's coming up next. Thank you so much and thanks for the show. It's fantastic. Say, little bitch, you can fuck with me if you wanted to. These expensive, these is red bottoms, these is bloody shoes. Hit the school, I can get them both. I don't want to choose. And I'm quick, cut a nigga off, so don't get comfortable. Look, I don't dance now, I make money move. Say, I don't gotta dance, I make money move. If I see you now, speak. That means I don't fuck with you I'm a boss, you a worker, bitch I make bloody moves Now she say she gon' do what or who Let's find out and see Cardi B, you know where I'm at You know where I be You in the club, just to party I'm there, I get paid a fee I be in and out them dance so much I know they tired of me Honestly, don't give a fuck about who in front of me Drop two mixtapes in six months What bitch working as hard as me I don't bother with these hoes Don't let these hoes bother me They see pictures, they say ghosts Bitch, I'm who they tryna be Look, I might just chill in some babe I might just chill with your boo I might just spill on your babe My pussy feel like a lake He wanna swim with his face I'm like, okay I let him get what he want He buy me East and Laurent And the new whip When I go fast as a horse I got the trunk in the front. I'm the hottest in the street. No, you probably heard of me. Got a bag and fix my teeth. Hope you hoes know it ain't cheap. And I pay my mama bills. I ain't got no time to chill. Think these hoes be mad at me. They baby father wanna build. Say, little bitch, you can fuck with me if you wanted to. These expensive, these is red bottoms, these is bloody shoes. Hit the school, I can get them both. I don't wanna choose. And I'm quick, cut a nigga off. So don't get comfortable, look I don't dance now, I make money moves 
say I don't gotta dance, I make money move If I see you now speak, that means I don't fuck with you I'm a boss, you a worker, bitch, I make bloody move If you a pussy, you get popped, you a goofy, you a up. Don't you come around my way, you can't hang around my block And I just check my account, turns out I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich I put my hand above my hip, I bet you dip, he dip, she dip I say, I get the money and go, this shit is hot like a stove My pussy glitter is gold, so that little bitch play her role I just a rope in a rose, I just came up in a rave I need to fill up the tank, no, I need to fill up the safe I need to let all these hoes know that none of their niggas is safe Go to dinner and steaks, only the real can relate. I used to live in the peace, now it's a crib with a gate. Rolly got charms, the life was the place. Hard to let these bitches know, just in case these hoes forgot. I just wanna check the mail, another check from Mona Scott. That little bitch, you can fuck with me if you wanted to. These expensive, these is red bottoms, these is bloody shoes. Hit the store, I can get them both. I don't wanna choose, and I'm quick. Cut a nigga off, so don't get comfortable. Look, I don't dance now, I make money move. Say I don't gotta dance, I make money move. If I see you now, speak, that means I don't fuck with you. I'm a boss, you a worker, bitch. I make bloody move. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.